Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Q is about conversation. If we're really concerned about ending poverty, we've got to be more concerned about creating justice. Our cultural products as Christians need to both defy and resonate with the culture. And God's doing amazing things. His church is expanding. His church is growing. It's not what's the purpose of my life. It's what is the purpose that's been assigned. Stay curious. Think well. Advance good. This is Q. To embrace the age means for me to understand it, to have a mature understanding of what is happening to the extent that we can. It also means to love it. It's not to say that to see it only as good. Remember, this is a contradictory age. But we love things that are complicated. We To love this and say, this is where God has placed us and we're going to love. That was Greg Thompson as we start this week's Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. I'm Paul from Faith Radio with Gabe as we continue this special series of shows on the six practices of the church. This is episode two in a series of seven that we're specifically doing to focus in on what does it mean for the church to recover some of the historic practices that have always been a part of how the church has shown up in a culture. And of course, at Q, we talk a lot about engaging the culture, renewing the culture, you know, many things that are about sort of outward facing things about how we engage. But sometimes we don't focus in on what does it mean to be the kind of culture? What does it mean to be a counterculture that's for the common good? It's not there to antagonize the world. But it's actually there to bring beauty and love and purpose into the lives of the people that we get to live alongside with. And so in this conversation, I'm joined by Dr. Greg Thompson, and he has been a friend over the last few years, somebody I've learned a lot from. And we've just had some engaging conversations that have led us down this path of saying, let's do something like this. Let's really try to talk through what does it look like for the church to be the church in this age. And this particular episode, we're going to jump into context. And that's one of the first questions that you have to ask. This is one of the first practices is that we have to embrace our context. Okay, this is what the church has done throughout the ages. It's understood the time in which it lives. We go back to First Chronicles 12.32, where the, the men of Issachar were described as understanding the times and knowing what to do. And so part of what we get to do today is try to understand the times a little bit more. And if you're like me, if you're a parent, if you're just trying to be a good friend, if you're watching the news and kind of keeping up with where the culture's going, it can be quite confusing to understand the time in which we're living. It's hard to put your finger on what's changing, but you sense that some things are different. There's new developments in ideology, the way people are thinking, the way people are talking, the new rules of morality and how people feel about things that are right or wrong and the, the constant really disagreement between people about some common shared interest. And so it's within that space that today we're going to uncover a little bit more about what is going on. You're going to hear some new language uh, in this talk from Greg where we're going to join in for a portion of his talk for a few minutes. We're going to hear him describe some of what's unique about this context. And then he and I together are going to talk about that. And I'm going to push into some of what he describes so that we can learn more together about what is the age that we're living in today? How would we define it? How would we describe it? And then finally, how would we faithfully start to imagine how the church shows up in it. So let's listen.
where are we? Now, this is a question about context. It's a question about the, the time and place in which we find ourselves, a question about context. And it's so important that, that we learn to answer this question about context uh, maturely and that we not simply hide behind vague generalizations about culture, but that we really understand the intellectual sources and the institutional structures and the individual experiences that are making our age ours. And yet it is not easy to understand our age, is it? Because if you listen to philosophers or theologians or social scientists or political theorists or economists, whoever, you're going to actually see that everybody is struggling to understand this age. And they're actually offering contradictory accounts of this age. And that is a very important and revealing fact. Because what it reveals is that the essential character of our age is that it is an age of contradiction. That it is an age of contradiction. This is where we are in a contradictory age. And let me tell you what I mean. And this is important. Our age grew out of a prior age as all ages do. And it was the age of the enlightenment and the architects of the enlightenment dreamed of this time when human beings would be free, right? We'd be free from all the intellectual and economic and technological orders imposed upon us by Kings and by priests. And we would be free to actually fashion a new world in which we would seek our own reasonable truths in which we would Pursue our own technological dreams, our own economic fullness, our own self-governance in our lives and our societies. Um, this is the dream. And there were elements of beauty in this dream, and some of them have come to be, and it's important that the church recognize this. The emphasis on reason brought education to people who had never had access to it before. And the emphasis on production led to the creation of unimaginable wealth for human beings. Advances in technology brought real agency to people who had been without agency. And the energy of self-governance opened up the possibility for individuals and for societies that had never been seen. We have to see that part of the light of this dream was real. And yet there were shadows that these early modernist architects did not see. Because the same Western culture that brought education to the world also brought forth some of the most destructive ideologies in the history of the world. And the same, the same productivity that brought unprecedented wealth to the world also created unprecedented economic inequality. The same technologies that promised emancipation have been used to enslave and to destroy millions of people. And the same self-governance that, that offered opportunity to us, to individuals and communities, has created some of the most self-absorbed societies in the history of the world. And so, yeah, the light was real. But the shadows were real too. And if you were, if you were white and you were male for, for several centuries, the light of that early vision seemed so brilliant that the shadows were largely invisible. But over time, the shadows became visible. In our own time, the light and the shadows are bound inexorably together, each struggling for mastery. Neither one of these is able to prevail. And it looks like this. Yes, we are freed from intellectual oppression, but only with the key of cynicism. Yeah, we're free to create wealth, but we seem condemned as a society only to spend it on the things that destroy us. Yeah, we're free to build any technology that we could dream only to spend our nights in restless sleep over the nightmare of what we've created. See, this is the essence of our contradictory age. It's a profound struggle between an enlightened, rationalized, utopian dream and an ideological, technocratic nightmare. And most of us have the temptation to resolve this contradiction, to only see the progress and only see the light. And Christian churches talk about as, as if this were the case. And others are, are resolved only to see the darkness, to only see the negative parts of our society. 
And there are lots of Christian churches that do that as well. But we have to resist the temptation because the truth of the matter is that we live in a contradictory age, this dappled age in which light and shadow mingle torturously together. And we have to understand that if we're going to truly be present in this age. Just listening, Greg, to your description of our age as a contradictory age, I know that's a new term that most of our listeners haven't heard, but really aptly describes what's unique about this particular moment is it's hard to put just one label on it because so many things seem to be in conflict with one another. One of the funny things is if, if you want to be honest about the moment in which we're living, you have to acknowledge, as we talked about in the talk, that there are really amazing things happening in terms of education, economics, technological development, the capacity for uh, stable political orders, all, all of those things are real. And when Christian communities don't acknowledge that, they, I think, express a sort of ingratitude towards what has happened in the world and that God has brought about. But at the yeah, same, same time... Well, it seems so easy, right, for us to focus on the negative, focus on what's gone wrong, focus on all of the ways in which we're not happy with society today. And we really emphasize those things, but it's not a fair treatment of where we sit today. Yeah, it's, I think it's not only unfair, it's ungrateful because there is a sense in which the kinds of things that we experience, the, the kinds of pleasures that we can have, the access that we can have to, to information, the kinds of – even in, in very difficult places – in our own society, the kinds of access people have to resources, it's an extraordinary thing. And yet at the same time, we do have to be honest against those who only want to tell the story of history as one of you know unbroken progress towards some uh, inevitably enlightened future. That No, actually, there are some like really serious problems, and there are things that are really terrible that happen to people. And so we want to live and inhabit that tension and this is a, I think it's a distinctively contradictory age in that way. Yeah, and you, you reference, and, I, and this is what I'm loving about our conversation, is just that you take us to the, not even 30,000 feet, we get this like 100,000 foot view of where we've been over hundreds of years from this first episode of this discussion to now. This one, specifically about context, you take it back to the Enlightenment, we're kind of looking back over the last several hundred years of what's been emerging. Uh, for a lot of people who look at today's culture, you know, they use words like postmodern and, you know, those kinds of descriptors, post-Christian. Um, but you're trying to take us even out of just referencing ourselves probably in this process and help us think much more broadly about our neighbor, which is going to be the theme, I think, throughout these conversations is that it's not just orienting ourselves as believers, as Christians to the moment. But it's what is it that our neighbor's experiencing? Because if we can't put ourselves in their seat, we really are going to not be at a good place to enter into any kind of helpful conversation with them. I think that's a really insightful thing. The idea of me to talk about this fundamentally as secular, fundamentally as post-Christian is really to understand the culture from my own particular vantage point. Uh, and I think that actually there's so many more things that are happening and that we have to understand these historical movements in order to to both love what we see that's good and also resist the things that are not. And this, this brings up this, this kind of ethic of both affirmation and resistance 
that, and we have to cultivate both of those because either one of those in isolation is not a faithful presence. Well, and just to dial it in though to our moment right now, kind of the moment we're living through, it seems like in American culture at least, we do sense that our culture has become uh, more tribalized, like people are kind of grouping up with those who think like they think ideologically, kind of fortifying against all others and then defending themselves. And it's just a constant uh, inability to see from another's perspective. It's constant sort of fighting with the outsiders who we see as there to kind of destroy our way of life or our way of thinking. The church is very susceptible to that kind of thinking. What are you seeing right now, how you would break down how this age of contradiction is playing itself out right now? Well, one of the things that I'm seeing right now is that because people don't want to embrace the the reality that this moment has lots of contradictory forces, people impose really simplistic narratives on what, say, in your case, in the case you just mentioned, American culture is. It is this, or America has always been that. And then what happens is we we compete with one another over simplistic narratives that we've constructed as to what's happening. And that becomes the battleground where if we actually step back from that and said, you know what, our own culture is this way. It also has some of these elements and that would enable us to listen to one another a little bit more and not compete over these fantasies that we have. Well, and one of those fantasies has been uh, that we live in a Christian America, right? Just that America is a Christian nation. It was founded by Christians. It was meant to be this Christian environment. I think that's one over the last few years have, has started to become deconstructed in a good way for the church to maybe disassociate itself from this understanding of American heritage as somehow being much like Israel and much like we're some special group of people in the big narrative of history. Yeah, I think – and that's a great example that I think is actually really complicated because in point of fact – there were deeply Christian impulses that gave rise to democracy, deeply Christian impulses that gave rise to certain aspects of American culture, and that can't be denied. And, and the fact that those things have ebbed and flowed over time is, is real. Um, it's also the case that there were deeply problematic, in fact, deeply wicked things that were embedded in this. You know, and I, as I've said in other occasions, it may be the case that this was a Christian nation. But it was the case that it's the kind of Christian nation that enslaved 8 million of its inhabitants. Right. So like, there's a contradiction that's embedded into that. And I think that we have to be free just to acknowledge that and be honest about that. Um, because only when we do that can we really be, um, I think, frankly, mature about in our, in our both understanding and our encounter with the world in which we live. Yeah, and we've used the term a lot like pluralism and, and trying to understand a pluralistic culture, which is part of our context now in American life where – there's multiple groups. There's multiple faith traditions. Everybody deserves, I guess, a seat at the table. And we're trying to learn how to get along despite having some of these disagreements with one another, maybe about our faith or how it should apply in the public square. And that's where it seems that for at least religious people and the church right now, this idea of our faith being public or showing up in the public square seems to be uh, at a moment where it's being contested, probably like a uh, few other times throughout American history. Am I wrong on that? Well, I think that there have been times when it has been contested. I think certainly there were parts of the Enlightenment when it was the case that it was contested, e- even in the early founding. I think that there were certainly different times in the in the 20th century, certainly times in the 19th century. And there that happens is sometimes Christianity comes back into the fore as a part of our public narrative and sometimes it goes away. I think the perennial challenge has been to recognize that American democracy by its nature is supposed to be, as our coins say, e pluribus unum, a one fashioned out of the many. And one of the things that the Christian church 
has both been really good at at times and horrible at at times is letting that pluribus, that many, in fact, be many, and doing the, the, the substantive work of fashioning one community out of that. You know, the practice, in fact, that we're wanting people listening to, to understand about context is to embrace our context. That's the practice. It's, it's not just to understand it. It's not just to know about it, but to embrace it. And I know for you, it matters a lot that we use that language because, in fact, well, I know to you it matters a lot that we use that kind of language. That's right. And the reason for that is it comes from our vision of what the Christian church believes about Jesus, which is that the word became flesh and dwelled among us. It was the deliberate embrace of time and space by the living God, which continues now by the Spirit through the church. And so to embrace the age um, means for me to understand it, to have a mature understanding of what is happening to the extent that we can. It also means to love it and to say – and it's not to say that to see it uh, only as good. Remember, this is a contradictory age. But we love things that are complicated. We To love this and say this is where God has placed us and we're going to love. And then – Thirdly, to get up, get to the work of in, inhabiting it, to actually indwell it with all that we are for the sake of our neighbors. Yeah, because when we have this kind of bifurcated view of it where we're just trying to analyze it, we're just trying to figure out how to kind of get into it and convert it to believe like we believe, it really can take away from just truly enjoying this amazing world that God's given us and that we've seen historically the church has contributed to creating that kind of world. And so it's important that we actually shift that perspective um, so that we know how to love our neighbors well no matter what moment we're living through. You know, you, you described shadows and, and light, and I love that because it's so true. It's, it's not as simple as just saying technology is bad for the world or all these developments have been bad. We, we're benefiting from so many of the great parts about it. But the shadows are very real. Would you go as far as to say most of the shadows we experience are a result of sin in the world, a result of evil, or a result of the fall? Is there anything else we would chalk up shadows to? Well, I mean, I think obviously sin in the world, uh, sin in me, sin in all of us. Uh, so individual sin, institutional sin that then gets systematized into social social units, into cities. Yeah, I think that sin is obviously at the heart of, of all of the, the brokenness. To say that, though, is not to say that every pain that we experience – uh, is simply a result of someone's deliberate sin. It's to say, I think one of the one of the things we have to acknowledge is that there's just a lot of complexity right now, and there's a lot of unintended consequences from the things that we do. Is it sin? Yeah, that doesn't always tell us everything we want to know, though, about how to solve it. You know, what it means to address it. So, yeah, I would say that there's a ton of sin, and that we are all implicated in it, and that part of our work is to acknowledge it, see it, repent of it. And then labor against it. And, and part of embracing our context then is to not be fearful of it, to not respond in trying to protect ourselves from the context. It's to know what does love look like when it shows up in this. And I know, you know, in, in these particular years, there's a lot of discussion about religious freedom, religious liberty. What does it mean for us to be able to practice our faith publicly? Do we have rights to do that? You know, when you go back and understand that freedom of conscience rights are something, you know, from your town, Charlottesville, James Madison, and many others wrote about and understood that, look, in the founding of this nation, every human being has a freedom to live by their conscience. In this context, though, that's being challenged. And there's certain ideologies that are seeming to win out that say, hey, if you don't sort of follow kind of this public set of ideas that, that the majority is starting to agree upon, then maybe your voice shouldn't be heard. Maybe your ideas and your conscience actually cause us harm. 
to the rest of us, and it gets back to this pluralistic moment, do you think the church is overreacting in its fears about religious freedom and maybe those protections going away that it's enjoyed for the last few years? Well, that's a great question. I'm not a scholar on the kind of legalities of religious liberty, but I will say this. On the one hand, I sometimes think that the church is naive about the degree to which it has contributed to the diminishment of the religious liberties of other people. Um, And we have created at times a a culture in which um, we were willing to censor or suppress other people. And now we have this big panic when suddenly it's happening to us. And I think that we we are complicit in some of the the kind of ideological warfare that has happened in this country. So one, I want to say that if there is a sort of oppression, if there is a sort of denial of freedom, we ourselves have both been complicit in that and have benefited from it historically. That seems incontrovertible to me. That said, I, I personally think that There are, in a pluralistic democracy, very real challenges, very real questions about what does it mean to have freedom of conscience? How does that extend in the public sphere? I do think that some of those liberties uh, will probably be curtailed in some way. I'm not personally panicked about that, and I sometimes do think that we exaggerate the extent to which that will happen to religious institutions. But I know that's a matter of debate. But I personally am less anxious about that, not for just personal pietistic reasons, but for legal reasons. I don't think it's as dire as other people do. Well, and you think of things like the tax-exempt status of churches being something that's only several decades old, not something the founding fathers established. You know, A lot of people just don't know that. They don't understand some of the information and the context. And what I think about where we're going with this discussion is, again, we're not to engage with fear. We're to be those who say – God's got this. He, he's doing something unique with the church. There's renewal opportunity, no matter what kind of challenges we face that might disrupt status quo. And that can actually be the best thing for the church is to see our status quo disrupted. Yeah, and whether it's the best thing for the church for me is is in some ways immaterial. What, the question for me is what's the best thing for the neighbor and what does it mean to love? Um, and I think this is where some historical context is really useful It may be the case that American Christians are ridiculed for their beliefs. I'm sure that that is the case. That pretty much makes it sound like every other part of the church and every other part of history. And I think we've been living in this sort of – this protected bubble. At least – let me say this. The white Protestant church has been in America has been living in this protected bubble that I think gave it a a sort of naivete about – what it actually means to follow Jesus in the world. So when you read the history of the Christian church, especially when you, when you read the history of the minority church in America, suddenly it seems less frightening. Right, because you know? our African-American friends <laughs> right. would say, oh, welcome to the club. Yeah, they're sort right. of like, oh, right, this is not re- restricted freedom. You don't even know what you're talking about, <laughs> right? I um, mean, until we're, you know, our churches are burned at the rate of one a month, th- then, we can, then we can maybe have a conversation. But I, I personally am not anxious from a legal perspective, as anxious as other people are, But even if those things were repressed, Christ is our life, and we live and move and have our being in him, and we follow him into this world, and I think we can do that with joy. I hope you're enjoying this conversation that Greg and I are getting to have and and that I hope is beginning a conversation for you amongst your friends and your colleagues about what does it mean to understand this context? You've probably heard some new terms, probably some things you want to think about, maybe re-listen to it and, and process. 
But essentially, it's the approach that's most important here. It's understanding that while our context is changing, while it's important to understand the context, that part of the goal is not just understanding and learning about it as information would give us, but it's to embrace it. It's to walk into God's good world with joy, with love for others, and to continue to put on a mentality and a lens that helps us to see the world through our neighbor's eyes, not just through the church's eyes or what the church might lose or how things are changing for us as Christians, but to understand how's the world changing for our neighbors? What are the universal needs and the desires and the function of the human heart that we need to better understand and know how to better engage by responding to the questions of our time? Well, again, this is Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, and we'll continue this series of the six historic practices of the Christian church. Now, next week, Greg Thompson and Gabe will look at the second of the practices, the practice of recovering our confession. What have Christians always believed? In tumultuous times like these, it can be good to go back and ask, what have we always known? What are we forgetting now that could help undergird us as we face our current world? Well, join us again next week for this important conversation. And maybe listening today, you'd like to take conversations like this and others that you hear on Q Ideas a bit deeper with others at your church or with some friends. Well, the 2023 Culture Summit, April 27th and 28th, would be a great place to do just that. It's both live in Nashville, or you can do it virtually as an individual or a group, maybe even having your church be a host site in your community. Again, the theme this year is Building Resilient Communities. Gabe will be speaking on understanding our times. Plus, we'll address topics like the idol of productivity, the future of AI, the state of policing, building family economies, and so much more. This is the 17th year Q will be hosting the Culture Summit. Gabe and his team hope to provide you with the wisdom and confidence you need to faithfully lead in our complex and urgent moment. The season ahead will require your most creative leadership, a vision for building resilient communities, and the courage to stand with conviction. The hope is with the inspiring, concise, and practical talks, and then the conversations around your table or with your group, you'll be equipped to influence and inspire conversations among those you lead. To learn more or to register, just visit qideas.org. And again, join us next week as we continue this series on the six practices of the church. Until then, I'm Paul Perot from Faith Radio. On behalf of Gabe, blessings. Have a great week. This show is made possible in partnership with Faith Radio and Northwestern Media. Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make your gift now at MyFaithRadio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or on your podcast player. And thank you for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons.